You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Brenda Mock Kirkpatrick-Brown. Brenda is a former college basketball player and head coach at the University of North Carolina. She was an assistant for 10 years at Georgia Tech, Charlotte and Florida before becoming head coach at UNC Asheville in 2012. In her eight years at UNC, the team won back-to-back Big South Conference tournament crowns in 2016 and 2017, an Elite Eight and Sweet 16 in the NCAA tournament, four consecutive postseason berths, and one Big South Conference regular season title. In 2016, she was named Big South Conference Coach of the Year. Brenda is presently taking a sabbatical, and so when we caught up with her, she had the time and space to reflect on her coaching journey. This meant that she was philosophical, but also reflective on the things she could have done better. Like all the great coaches, she's a lifelong learner and thinking about what she will do differently next time. She believes that you coach the individual and not just the athlete, and that you can never be the type of coach that the athlete has to overcome in order to perform at their best. This means that you have to guard against your passion, interfering with your emotions and the way you communicate. She has great positivity and talks about using belief and positive language to help people overcome their own doubt. And she shares the great quote from Billie Jean King on pressure being a privilege and how this influences her approach to leadership. Other highlights for me included her view that when choosing a captain, you should look for someone who is consistent in their work ethic and is not afraid to take accountability and sacrifice themselves for others. And her advice to other female leaders on communicating your passion but also explaining how you are coping in the role and achieving the life balance that will be important to other women who may be considering a leadership position. 
It was a lot of fun interviewing Brenda. She has great energy, and I hope you get as much out of it as we did. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Brenda, welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. I'm very honored that you would ask me to contribute. We are very excited to talk to you today. I'm a big basketball fan. I'd like to start with something really simple, though. If you could just tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to today. Awesome. I am in Blacksburg, Virginia. Most people know Blacksburg because this is where Virginia Tech is located. And my husband, Jeremy, and I moved here about three months ago so he could begin pursuing a PhD program in engineering education. And so we're excited about the future and just really enjoying the process and how it's both challenged us, enlightened us for sure. But that is what I'm doing currently. Well, we are very thankful for your time today and we're going to take you back to UNC where you just finished up coaching and we'll take you on a bit of a tour of your successes there and you might even go back further to high school if that's okay with you. Okay. So I'd like to just start by winding the clock a bit actually because you've had first-hand experience of some great coaches. There's Amanda Butler, Angus Berenoto and John Best and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But what is it you think the great coaches do differently? Well, I think the great coaches are lifelong learners. You'll hear that a lot, but I think they're evaluating themselves constantly and pursuing their craft constantly. And our craft is pretty broad. In terms of coaching, you've got your technical piece. And in basketball, people say X's and O's. And then you've also got your delivery piece, how you're connecting to your athletes and individualizing that coaching to get the most out of them. And so you've got to know yourself And also, you've got to know your audience at any given time. I mean, there's a way you communicate effectively to a group of 18 to 22-year-olds and to your staff and to boosters and to recruits and their parents. And you don't lose your authenticity or your integrity, but you have to have that situational awareness and know what that group's needs are. I've found, Paul, and, and I didn't do this very well at the beginning of my career, but because you want to know everything, you want to be right, and you want to have all the answers, but you have to be willing to say, I don't know. I would also say you have to be willing to say, I made a mistake, and here's where I could have done something differently in front of your kids, in front of your staff, because they're constantly evaluating you and learning from you and preparing perhaps themselves to be a head coach. And the last thing I would say, and this kind of goes to that audience, is just be great communicators. So that's not just how we're speaking with people. I've learned that listening over the years and not necessarily listening to correct or respond, but truly listening to try to figure out where that person is coming from is truly important. So that's the last thing I would say about that. And I'll give you a little nugget, something that prepared me to be a head coach I was on three first-year head coaching staffs. So at Georgia Tech, I was working with Michelle Joseph. I was there with her for a year, and I think she was at Georgia Tech for 16 years after that. And so learned a lot from watching that experience and going through that. My very next job at Jacksonville University, small Division I school in the Atlantic Sun Conference, was for Jill Dunn. And that was her first year as a head coach. (laughs) So that was staff number two. And so I was there with her for a year. And then with Amanda Butler at UNC Charlotte before she went on to Florida. And of course, now she's at Clemson. But she was a first-year head coach. And so that was just such a blessing. I mean, what an experience to be in the trenches with a coach that's doing it for the first time. 
I learned a lot about that and learned a lot about what they did, mostly really good decisions they made. And of course, we all make mistakes. So I was learning from both angles. But I just, when I look back at my coaching career, I think, wow, I don't know if I know anyone else that has been on a part of that many first year head coaching staff. So that was really cool. And that really influenced my experience as well. And yet, Brenda, in your first year as coach, by your own admission, you said you were a little hot-headed. And I'm (laughs) wondering, how did you learn it? And then what did you do afterwards to adjust your style? I think that most people would describe me as intense. And it's that passion. We all want to succeed and we want it really badly. And I think that passion can sometimes interface with emotion. And I love passion. Emotion can really be difficult in a coaching situation, whether you're in practice or responding to something. Assistant coach comes in and says, hey, we lost this recruiter. I made this mistake. And how do you respond to that? What is your first response to adversity? And mine wasn't great. I think it was really what was happening, Paul. I was seeing life through the lens of how my circumstances, we weren't very good in that first year. We had tons of injuries. It was a rebuilding process, but I was looking at it through the lens of how is this making me feel? How is this impacting me? Instead of focusing on the external and how I could make my kids and my staff better, how I can get them through this journey. Because, Paul, we were 2-28, and (laughs) and those two wins were against non-Division I opponents. So we did not win a Division I game in my first year of coaching. And so I found myself sometimes clicking my heels like uh, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I want to go home. I want to go home. It was tough, Paul. But I also learned anger and emotion can become a distraction. And you always want to keep the main thing the main thing. So I needed to adjust. And hopefully I did that to a degree. Well, you did adjust because it was a very successful tenure. And I want to step through that tenure. But you talked about the rebuild. And many coaches get into a situation like you were in. What did you do first? What set you on the path to the success that came later? I think that the first thing I did that was a good decision, so I can pat myself on the back for this, I didn't make many good decisions in that first year, but I hired a really good staff. I would say, and I have talked to some coaches who just took their first jobs this in this past year, and then obviously Coach Brown, who was my assistant for eight years, Knowing that, I made a great decision in hiring her to be on staff. I think you have to hire people that are very different from you, competent, hardworking, and hungry. I think that was probably the best decision I made in my first year was staffing. And then when you finished last year, the head of director of athletics, Janet Cohn, said about you, all who follow our program know that Brenda is passionate about winning games, but even more so about developing champions and leaders in life. So what kind of coaching philosophy have you got that has led your boss to lead with this wonderful statement when you left? So many people ask about coaching philosophy. I think mine's pretty simple. I think in any profession, in any industry, your philosophy has to be first connecting with your purpose of why you're there. You're there for a reason. And I fully believe that in any situation. Why am I here? What am I supposed to learn? How am I supposed to impact And the second one's kind of humorous is don't be something your players have to overcome. (laughs) I wanted to be, I wanted to be something that was a presence and an experience that my players appreciated and enjoyed and looked forward to. 
I didn't want to have to be something that players are eight years remembering. Gosh, you remember she was, she made me feel so anxious. I felt pressure every time I was in contact with this coach or I felt like she neglected me and didn't really care about me except as a basketball player. So those are just some, some examples of what I did not want to be. And so I tried to behave in a way that would impact my players positively and be a blessing rather than a curse. <laughs> what about behaviors and values? Anything that's fundamental to your style? Yes, I think the integrity of your word is critical. The accountability piece that I spoke about earlier, that is a connecting. Everybody understands whether they admit it or not that we all have faults and flaws. That's just in our nature. And so the more we're able to communicate that, the relatability, I believe, is got to be there. Of course, you're going to relate on different levels to different kids and different staff members at different times for different reasons. But I think both of those things have to be there in terms of the non-negotiables. Honesty and the straightforwardness, your everyday living has to be there as a coach. I love this idea of don't be something your players have to get over. It's a wonderful quote and it can be applied to any part of one's life. Reading about you, I can see that your mother was a big supporter of yours. And I'm wondering, is that something that came from her? And if not, are there other elements in your coaching style that you see reflected from her? Moms are moms. I mean, they're just so supportive. They're kind of neat in that they believe no matter what that their son or daughter is in the right. (laughs) They're the biggest fans. They're the biggest protectors. I think that we do view men and I think men do need to be a very protective presence, fathers, husbands, however you want to look at that. But also women are just fiercely, fiercely protective of their children. And I found that I was, after practice, you all go sit in the office, you and the coaching staff, you sit in the office, you got to talk about practice and things can be positive, but they can also be a little bit negative in that circle. That's okay. You're venting. And we tried not to complain too much about our kids because I didn't see much merit in that, but you're in that little circle of trust and you might think, oh, so-and-so, she just wasn't really present today. What's going on with her? But outside that circle, if someone in the greater community was saying something negative about one of my kids or staff members, I mean, I was fierce mama bear. (laughs) It was like, now I can be critical of them, but you have no right to. And so I thought, where is this coming from? So that was probably something I learned from mom and just the consistency. I mean, she shows up. And the last thing I will say is mothers been through a lot and as mothers tend to sacrifice quite a bit and just her resiliency and ability to march forward despite her circumstances. So those are probably some things that I learned from mom. And we have the same name. I don't know if you knew that, Paul. Her name is Brenda. So one of the funny things around our program, and this actually started with Amanda Butler, she would call me junior and call my mother senior. So there was junior and senior. There's a little tidbit. If you're wondering where I got my name, that is. And her maiden name, Paul, was Mock. And so a lot of people wonder, where does this Coach Mock come from? And that's where that comes from. So she named me Brenda Mock Kirkpatrick. And so that's where the Coach Mock comes from. I feel like I should start calling you Coach Mock now. I'm sitting up more straighter in my chair. I don't know (laughs) if you can see that. There's a wonderful quote from you where you're reflecting on your journey and you say, the more someone tells you something and you believe it, the more you want to do it. So I wanted to ask, is there a player or a staff member that you've been able to improve through sort of delivering those words again and again and again? 
I do believe that to a certain degree. It's that's self-fulfilling prophecy. I didn't come up with that, right? I mean, that's been something that it's socio-psychological phenomenon that's been around for a while. I mean, the more you internalize something or hear it, whether you're saying it to yourself or you're internalizing something that someone is saying to you, you believe it. Sometimes you have to guard against that because if you're constantly hearing negativity, you have to have a filter there. But we try to talk positively to our kids. And I do think there are, there's certainly, pointing to one person would be difficult, but Sometimes, I don't know if you've heard coaches say that coaches believe in their athletes more than their athletes believe in themselves. And so we want to constantly be building them up and use language that's positive. Now, you don't want to blow smoke, as we say. You don't want to fluff up or flatter because people can see through flattery. They know when you're not telling the truth. And so this person has to be able to, to back that up in terms of their work ethic and what they're bringing to the table. Not perfectly, but there has to be some substance there. But sometimes people just can be so critical of themselves. That's something that we talked about a lot is how we speak to our players matters. And we want to be truthful, but we also want to be uplifting and encouraging because people need that. I mean, we need that in this world. You can see with we're sort of pervasively negative right now and critical, as I was talking about earlier. And I think people need to hear positivity, truth but truth and love and positivity. And I hope that all of my players would say, Coach Mock really believed in me and that helped me believe in myself and really reach my potential in a better way. I can't do it for them, but seeing someone believe in you and depend on you, that's the other thing, Paul. You can believe in someone, but are you willing to put the ball in their hands in a critical situation? <laughs> do you really trust them? Do you back that belief up with your actions? And when they feel that, wow, Coach Mock's depending on me. She believes in me. This is an extra piece of motivation. It's not going to be the motivation because it can't come from me. And conversely, what I would say, Paul, is I would encourage players, if your coach is a little bit more negative, that's where you need to use that filter and then understand you've got to have that personal accountability. That whole Self-fulfilling prophecy can work both ways, but hopefully my kids would say that my belief in them and my positive language and the way I communicated influenced them and helped them become better players and better people. You've also been vocal saying pressure's good and to have expectations is good. I'm wondering how have you really isolated resilience as something you want to build and then gone around making the players just improve in handling pressure? Well, when we first arrived at UNC Asheville, there was no pressure. There was no expectation. If we dwell there and we stay in that state, then that means we're not improving. One of the quotes, and you've heard this one before, it's from Billie Jean King, is pressure is a privilege. It comes only to those who earn it. So I talked about that with our kids. If you're feeling pressure, if you're in a situation where there is external pressure, now I want to be specific on this, Paul. This is more the external pressure that comes from expectations, from outside expectations. Because we all can feel pressure internally, pressure where and expectations we have of ourselves. But if you have external pressure, people are watching and people have an expectation. That means your program is improving and the stage is increasing, the platform is increasing. And so that's what Billie Jean King, I think, I haven't had a conversation with her about this. I think she is implying that when you're on that stage at Wimbledon or wherever you are, you're in the NBA finals, you're in the championship game at the free throw line, 
people are watching and this shot is for the championship, you've earned it. And that's a privilege. I tried to get our players comfortable with that. Hey, we want this. This is a good thing. Now, you don't want to internalize that because there's that balance that that can also just get you off your focus of what you're trying to do. But to be in environments where others perceive, oh, this is a high pressure situation. Wow. That's where we want to be. And so we talked about that. We want to be in a place where people care. People expect our program, finish in the top three of the Big South every year. We talk about things. Instead of leaving big issues as elephants in the room, we want to address those things. And I think you've got to talk about pressure and how to metabolize it and what to do with it. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Professor Eric Knight the Executive Dean of the Macquarie Business School, and he's just stepped out of the classroom. Eric, how do the programs offered by the school help prepare people for the future? Well, part of it is about preparing students to think about the outside world and seeing the changes and how that looks different. But it's also about people's inside world and how they draw from their inner purpose and motivation to be able to build careers that are meaningful for them over a very long time. Thanks, Eric. The master's programs at the Macquarie Business School, designed to empower you, challenge you, and transform the way you think. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Year one. 2 and 28. At the end, you finish up at UNC and let's just go through the postseason success. Back-to-back Big South Conference tournament crowns, NCAA tournament berths, four consecutive postseason berths and one Big South Conference regular season title. This is pretty big turnaround and great success. So it felt to me preparing for today and just reading about your story that there was something about your team's ability to handle pressure and stress that just was different and set them apart. And I wanted to sort of drill into that a little bit more and say, was there anything you talked to them about or was there a routine or a drill or something that got that optimum level of tension in the postseason and just gave them the energy they need to go on with it? I think I'm probably going to answer this how a lot of coaches would. When you're preparing your team as best you can in practice, Put your team in pressure situations. As much as you can make drills, and this is my philosophy, as much as you can introduce competition into their everyday routine, because think about how much you're practicing versus how much you're playing. In basketball, it's ridiculous. Maybe not in, at the NBA level or Major League Baseball, but in 
college basketball, we're playing 29 games a year. Paul, when I charted our practices last year, I always put the number of the practice at the top of the page. We're at practice 100 at the end of the season going into the conference tournament. And, and that's where the gold is. And so what you do in practice matters in terms of preparing your players to be consistent in high-pressure situations. Going back to my last response, I think you have to talk about it. You have to talk about, for example, in 2015-16, we were picked eighth, we finished first, and we happened to be hosting the tournament that year. And so we went from no expectation, no pressure in 14-15 to in 15-16, one year later, all of a sudden, we're hosting the tournament, we're supposed to win. What? (laughs) Where did that come from? What do we do with that? And I remember sitting in a circle in our practice gym, just sitting there, legs crossed. And I said, okay, let's talk about this. This was before our first tournament game. It was the day we had a bye and and we were getting ready to watch the eight and nine opponent play and we finished up our practice. And how are we really feeling right now? What are we thinking? Because I've also learned that some people are feelers. Some of your kids are feeling. Some of your kids are thinking. (laughs) They don't externally process all the same. So you kind of have to speak to both of those audiences. How are you feeling? Because we want to know that. And then, okay, you thinkers out there, not that feelers aren't thinkers, don't mistake that, but we all process differently. And we talked about it, but the last thing I'll say is don't change too much. There's a process and a consistency. You've got to be able to adapt, but there's some aspects that are methodical. You don't want to change up your routines game to game. Most people need to be able to rely on that consistency of process And 15, 16, probably out of all the years we were there, we were very processed focused. I think I'll take some of the blame of the latter years. The last four years I was the head coach, I probably could have focused on process instead of results as much as we did after we won that first championship. And I know that was a long answer, but I think that some coaches may have the philosophy as well. We don't really want to talk about that because then they're going to start thinking about it. (laughs) I don't have that philosophy. I think you need to talk about it, communicate about it, see where everyone is in most situations. Now, those might not always be team conversations, but I think you have to address things with your kids. Don't leave things to chance or hope because hope is just not a good strategy. And if I'm not addressing something with my team, I'm hoping, I hope that this is not too much for them. I don't really want to bring it up because then they'll start thinking about it and maybe they're going to feel more pressure. You know, I don't think hope is a good strategy. I want to cover as many bases as I can. You were captain of your college team and now you've been a successful coach. So I'd like to ask you, what do you look for when you're choosing a captain? Well, first of all, I've thought back many a time to my experience at Wake Forest. And honestly, we were not very good. You can have a winning culture and culture is culture. There's successful cultures and winning culture. And a lot of people talk about that. But then there's also traditions that can go in the other direction. And with a program like Wake Forest, who has improved in the past decade, of course, but that had traditionally not had success, I had a great opportunity in that program. I was there five years and I feel like I just missed it. And because, and I don't want to go rehash my failures as a captain or a player and not taking advantage of every opportunity. But what that taught me is that I don't want my players to have regrets like I have as a student athlete. I'm really looking back, I could have done a better job. When I'm looking for a captain, I think that consistency and work ethic, it has to be impeccable. 
she has to be what I would call, and I say she, she or he has to be your loudest worker. Even if you're not focused on that kid, she's impacting the play. She's talking, she gets tips, she gets her hands on the ball, she's being physical, or if the play didn't really involve her, which in basketball, it usually involves, <laughs> we only have five players on the court, but she's picking her teammate up or she's part of a positive response to a play. I mean, she is loud, so loud that you walk into the gym, you see that player because she's working so hard. Because people talk about work ethic, but there's a continuum. She has to be relatable. That goes back to, I think your captain has to be a reflection of the coach in terms of their relatability and accountability, taking responsibility for her flock, that team that she's leading. And then I think the love for the team and her teammates, it goes so far that she's willing to be inconvenienced. She's willing to take extra time after practice. She's willing to speak up in practice. That is so hard for these student athletes to do. That is so hard for them to address each other, to correct, but you have to connect before you correct. This captain has to be connected to her teammates or the respect won't be there. Although you could argue the work ethic, again, she could earn the respect, but the way she communicates and the way she treats her teammates matters and she has to be willing to be inconvenienced. And I think a lot of kids want to be captain and they do have a good work ethic, but they don't have time for the other responsibilities. It takes time to lead, and you have to be willing to give of yourself. And I believe you have to be willing to disappoint yourself. In other words, you know, some people don't have that philosophy. <laughs> if you have a choice between disappointing yourself and disappointing someone else, some people will say, disappoint that other person and use you every time. And I think I understand what they're saying, but I actually think as a captain, you have to maybe not disappoint, maybe that's a strong word, but you have to be able to sacrifice yourself for the good of the other person. And it's hard to have to do that every single day. It's really difficult. And so that's something that we have conversations with our leaders about before they become captains. So it's a big responsibility. I think captainship on a team is huge. It should not be taken lightly and it should not be entered into lightly. I can see by the detail why you answered that question, just how much you've reflected on your experience as a captain. And there's some really interesting ideas in there. And it's something I would actually be quite afraid to do, <laughs> given the expectations, because you're at university. You've got to go off and you've got to get good grades. You've got to finish. You've got to be doing internships. You've got all this pressure on you and you've got to take on the captaincy. So I can see why you would really be looking for someone special to fill that role. But also, what was really good about your program when you were coach is that that team was recognised by the NCAA Division One as having a top 25 academic performance. So you weren't just churning out really good basketball players who were winning championships. You were churning out people that were having a balanced life and have hopefully gone on and used their degrees to build a better life for themselves too. So that must have been very satisfying for you as a coach. It was, Paul. I think that's probably our greatest achievement. And I really cannot take credit for that. Obviously, we emphasized academics. My staff did a stand-up job in terms of really caring for their players and taking an interest in their academics. We had what we called a family structure. So we had smaller families within the bigger family and we encouraged our players to take an interest in each other's academics and ask and support. And I would point to, particularly at UNC Asheville, the academic environment there. It's a small school. 
The professors are very accessible and relational there. Class sizes, again, are small. And so I think there was a combination of factors. One of the things, though, I will say that our staff did a great job of was our APR for six straight years was 1,000. And that's very difficult. And so just to kind of boil APR down, academic progress rate, it's how are you retaining and graduating players? And I think in kind of this society of transactional, what am I getting for you? Very results focused. If I'm not happy here, then I'm going to go shop elsewhere and transfer in athletics. And I'm not saying all transfer situations are negative at all. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes when you talk about the transfer situation, that's a touchy subject. There are reasons and legitimate reasons that people do need to transfer. But we wanted to, when we made that investment in a young lady that we were recruiting, we wanted to retain them. I think because we did that successfully for so long, it spoke to our academic, it contributed to our academic success at the institution. And Being in the top 10, I think that was in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember which year we were in the top 10 of all Division I teams in our cumulative GPA. That was probably one of the greatest achievements these girls had. Sometimes that doesn't get recognized, of course, as much as the athletic achievements, but I am incredibly proud of that. It's really, like you said, the the kids have so many responsibilities. Mm And to have a cumulative, have 14, 15 girls on a team with those kinds of responsibilities at a rigorous academic institution, and our GPA is a 3.5, that's pretty incredible. (laughs) So I really have to say hats off to the staff, and really the credit is due to the kids who invested in that. I think that has to be part of your culture if you want to be successful, because these kids, they are, like you said, they're graduating, they're going and doing other things and you want them to be prepared. And so investing in their, that's something too, academic success, that's a very individual accountability. In this kind of culture of group mentality, it's hard to do that with your academics (laughs) because nobody's taking the test for you. Nobody's writing the paper for you, hopefully. That's a very individualized, very specific individual accountability because I think there are situations where we've got to be individually accountable and we're losing that, in my opinion, in our culture a little bit, we're losing the individual responsibility and accountability. We kind of group affiliate and I don't know that that's a, a positive thing in all situations. I want to just talk about Coach Brown, who you handed over to. She said when she was taking on the role, she thanked you for empowering her over the prior eight years. And I, I thought that was a very interesting word that she used. It's a great recognition, actually, of you developing your staff for the future as well. But I wanted to sort of twist the question a little bit and say, you know, what can be done to empower and encourage more women to get into coaching? Because there isn't a lot. I think one thing we can do is we have so many platforms now with social media, a lot of the athletic departments, the sports or the communication within the athletic departments are putting out videos and material. Young ladies who are players or just the community has more access to what's going on within athletic programs today, far more than they did even five years ago. One thing I would say is communicate your passion for what you're doing. People want to do something that looks attractive, not easy, but that looks like, hey, we're having fun doing this. This is an awesome opportunity and a privilege to be in a position of influence in a time where it is so needed. And we need more young women 
to be role models and to aspire to be role models for the generation that's coming behind them. But I think it has to look like we're having fun doing it. College athletics, I think one mistake we make is we take ourselves way too seriously. And I know there's a lot of money involved. And usually when there's money involved in any kind of institution, you have pressure, which influences decision-making, which influences behaviors and all of those sorts of things. And I think we've got to drill it down to, now this is a game. And through this game, we can achieve so much. We can talk about relationships. We can talk about adversity. We can talk about team over the individual. We can talk about, wow, you're really going to be prepared for life after college because of all of these responsibilities you had on your plate as a student athlete. You just think about so many, you're coaching not just the athletic aspect of an individual, you are coaching the entire individual. People need to see people who look like them because there's a lot of conversation too. I mean, a lot of our student athletes, we have a very diverse group and are we doing enough to encourage black females, especially in the sport of women's basketball, to get into coaching. And so more of our student athletes will have role models who look like them. But especially regardless of race, just having more former student athletes who played the game, getting into coaching is very important. And I think it's something we have to communicate about our responsibilities. And yes, there, it is difficult and it is demanding, but we have to also communicate, you can do it and still have a balanced life. I hope that makes sense, Paul, what I'm saying, because I think sometimes people think coaching at the Division I level or any level is kind of an all or nothing. If I'm a coach, I'm, this is going to be 70 hours a week, and I'm not going to have time for these other things that I might have desires for, whether it be family or just having a more balanced life. And so I think people look at coaching and they're like, oh. I don't really know if I want to sacrifice these other things in order to be a college coach. And we have to demonstrate and communicate that you can have it all. It's going to be difficult, but you can have it all. And I think a lot of women may not want to get into coaching because of that. And I'm sure there's going to be people on the other side of the coin that would say athletic directors are hiring maybe more males or, or something like that. But I think we've got to have more females in the applicant pool. Because what I found as a head coach, when I had a position open, I would have the ratio might have been two to one of male applicants versus female applicants for positions. That was true at every time I had a position open. And so that's where you got to think, okay, let's look at this. Why? Why are there so many more male applicants for positions in women's basketball than female applicants. So, I mean, we could talk about, this could be a whole podcast <laughs> kind of talking about that. But it's critically important that we have females in coaching for both the coaches and the student athletes. Brenda, one last question, if I can. You're having a sabbatical year before you get back into coaching. Maybe you're still working, so maybe it's not so much of a sabbatical <laughs> year. But if we paused for a minute and looked back, you've been in basketball since high school, probably since you were a kid. And you've got some space now to think and reflect. And I'm wondering what you think the legacy is that you've left so far as a coach? I hope, I've kind of spoken to this earlier about how I hope that our former players viewed me as a head coach. I would hope they would just simply remember me as someone who was ever present and showed up and rang the bell. I try to hang my hat on consistency and love and love, not so much as the emotion I talked about with our players, love being action. It's not just a feeling in any context, whether that be 
in your job or in your marriage or in, in your relationships that your actions speak louder than anything. I would hope they remember me as someone who cared, was consistent, and, and really loved them through word and deed. And I don't know what the future holds. I mean, as I was telling you about before we started recording, when I resigned in April, I had no idea. It's not that I'm against making goals and having a plan, but I've also learned as a person of faith, I can have a plan, but I have to be open-handed about that plan and plans can change. And so I'm excited about what the future holds. And I'm certainly not saying that I would not get back into coaching because it was such a wonderful experience, but I also have to be open-handed with that. So we'll see, but I love still being involved in conversation and in relationship with other coaches and really have a passion for the game and for coaching because it really has changed my life. I really think it's a great profession. If I get back into it, great. If I don't, I'm always going to be a big fan of both players and coaches and the game and people like you. This is great. I mean, this whole concept of your why behind the podcast, I think is so cool because you have a daughter and you're investing in her. What a blessing to have a dad invest in a little girl. I mean, that could be the biggest difference in her life. I think this is very cool what you're doing, and I'm just honored to have spent some time with you today, and I appreciate you having me on. The honor is ours, Coach Bock. Thank you so much, Brenda. It's wonderful listening to your story. It's great reflecting on it with you and taking your learnings from along the way, and I wish you all the best in whatever comes along next. And best of luck with this, and keep going. Keep doing it. Get as many coaches on here as you can, and I will be definitely a lifelong listener of the Great Coaches Podcast. (laughs) Thanks, Brenda. Hi everyone, it's Mike here, and you've been listening to the great coach, Brenda Kirkpatrick-Brown. Some of the highlights for me were Brenda's view on the importance of hiring staff that are different from you, but also competent, hardworking, and hungry, particularly when you are early in your tenure as a leader. How passion can interfere with emotion, and emotions can detract from the way you respond to difficult situations. And that it's possible to change this dynamic by focusing externally, not internally, on how you make things better. The importance of guarding against the internalization of negative feedback and filtering it through language that is positive. And Brenda's reference to the Billie Jean quote of Pressure is a privilege. It only comes to those who earn it as a way of describing her approach to helping her athletes deal with pressure. If you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like our Sam Bones who said, great insight and storytelling. And Jordy who said, great podcasting, spotlighting some real role models. The interaction with people around the world who listen to us gives us great energy. If you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. All the details of how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.